Welcome to Evolved Radio, where we explore the evolution of business and technology. Today on the podcast, we're diving into the evolution of biosciences and genetic engineering. I'm speaking with Michael Seiler with Taconic. Michael is an expert in genetic engineering, and at Taconic, they help researchers to test drug therapies and even gene therapies with highly controlled animal models. The field of biosciences is evolving fast, and Taconic is basically at the cutting edge of providing what is a more modern test tube. On the podcast, Michael and I discuss gene therapy and the science of genetic engineering. We also discuss the quickly advancing field of the microbiome. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Also, be sure to check out the webpage, evolvedmgmt.com slash podcast for show notes, links to my guests, and to check out previous episodes. Now let's get started. Joining me on the podcast today is Michael Seiler, VP of Commercial Product with Taconic. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. Really interesting discussion today. Uh, a bit off the the typical path for uh, for the podcast, but an area of particular interest for me. And um, really looking forward to to diving into this. The the area that you work in, I guess, would largely be described as. Uh, research and genetic engineering. And you want to give us a bit of background on the the work that you guys do and and fill us in on your role? Sure. Um, My background goes back probably 15, 20 years in the research space, studying how we can modify DNA for therapeutic purposes. Um, The my personal research background goes back to engineering viruses for gene therapy back into the late nineties when this was, um, a really, uh, a really novel concept on how we can treat some of the underlying mechanisms of disease, uh, related to, um, monogenic gene dysfunction, single genes cause a, cause a specific disease. And how could we go in and repair that? Um, as I've, kind of transitioned through my career from a research setting to now leading uh, the commercial activities at Taconic, uh, we basically take these tools and understand how a tool is used by scientists. How do we take the power that we have to manipulate the genome of living things and create or increase the potency of research tools, unlocking the creativity of scientists that uh, are operating all over the the university research landscape and in the biotech space and in, and, and now transitioning into greater acceptance in large pharma. Very cool. And uh, you, you mentioned something that I think is important for people to understand uh, when it comes to, I guess, uh, this be the field of gene therapy, where you're doing research on monogenetic uh, uh, abnormality. I think that's an important piece to understand of what the capability of those systems are, is that we only really have the capability to fix something if we know a very specific gene that causes a very specific function, which is not really typical of you think what you think of as most diseases and things, they typically are uh, cascading effects of multiple genes. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, And when you think of, uh, when we kind of break and sort of bifurcate these diseases into specific categories and ways that we can approach them therapeutically, um, you have lots of options. And and clinicians have these in their toolkit, whether it's a small molecule therapy or something more creative uh, in in the recent sort of success pattern in, in cancer therapy with with designing a monoclonal antibody to, to 
to act on a specific pathway and impede the ability for cancer to develop. Gene therapies act somewhat differently, right? Gene therapy basically identifies a specific abnormality in the genome and attempts to correct it. And scientists are pure pragmatists. This can be a really big challenge. If you figure that the, the genes are not always expressed the exact same level in every tissue, they're not expressed in the same place. Sometimes those places are very hard to reach with a genetic intervention. Um, these become challenges to the researcher to understand what are the pragmatic limitations to introducing a new gene to introduce a new function. And the long, the longstanding history in genetic engineering is to understand the difference between gain of function and loss of function. If you, if you neutralize a gene, you lose the functionality of that specific gene or pathway, the protein it makes, um, the, the, the process and physiology that it affects. Gaining of function is a very separate thing. And most commonly in gene therapy, we, we understand the specific diseases where there's a, there's a hereditary mutation that leads to a loss of function of a critical gene and consequently a, gene, uh, a critical pathway. Losing that function yields us an ability to go to understand how, if we correct that, if we correct it at 1% or 5% or 100%, what's the necessary threshold to intervene therapeutically? Um, greatest example, um, sort of the most historical example of this is hemophilia. We know that hemophilia is a monogenic disease. It, it's caused by a single gene lesion on uh, factor eight or factor nine and several other of the blood clotting factors. Uh, this leads people to have an inability to, to properly clot after a cut or after a wound or an internal uh, lesion. Replacing 1% or 5% of factor eight, the factor eight gene will completely correct the adverse pathology of hemophilia. And so that gives us a lot of potential to understand as, the, as, as uh, researchers in this space, how could we think about this disease? And how could we supply that one to 5% that's therapeutically corrective and prevents the majority of pathologies and, uh, and comorbidities associated with hemophilia through some genetic intervention? That's really and inter that's, that, that's really interesting. Yep. Let me let me uh, underline if I understand correctly what you're saying that um, when you correct the gene in hemophilia, it actually only has like a one to five percent effective rate on sort of the the total genetic map within the body, but it's enough that it actually corrects the disease overall in the body. Slightly slightly different twist on that. What we've learned through studying the pathways of hemophilia is that the the Factor eight gene creates a protein that if you were to re in a person that's, that is factor eight deficient, if you were to re if you were to resurrect one to 5% of that total amount of factor eight, you would completely correct the, the major pathophysiology, the, the major issues with the disease. And so while normal uh, high functioning factor eight individuals in the population make a hundred percent, let's call it a hundred percent, five percent of that would be sufficient to correct the majority of catastrophic consequences for people that are completely deleted for that gene. Interesting. And so so the the bar for success for, for genetic therapies in that space 
uh, is achievable. And that means that when we think of the pragmatic aspect of gene therapy, how are you going to correct one to 5%? Does it have to come from the actual cells and tissues in the body that make factor eight? Or could it come from somewhere else? Could it come from the muscle? Could it come from a different tissue that's more uh, prone to genetic manipulation so that you could resurrect that same circulating amount of factor eight that corrects all the all the downstream consequences of lacking it. Very cool. And so hemophilia being one of the the diseases that's obviously treatable with the gene therapy. What are some of the others, just quickly, on uh, that are top of the list areas of of uh, what we feel are practical research for that? Yeah. So so uh, different um, uh, cystic fibrosis is sort of the other most commonly recognized potential target for gene therapy. Uh, this is a this is a single gene mutation where we know extensively about the biology on what is uh, what the mutation leads to and how to we could correct it. Um, there's been massive advances uh, with companies like Vertex and, and others that have addressed some of the common limitations with cystic fibrosis and created inordinate clinical success in prolonging the lifespan of people with CF. Um, but what if you could have a longer term therapy where it's a single intervention that results in uh, in course correction over a significant amount of time? So what are some other capabilities that you hope to see in the future that are not in, maybe entirely practical today with gene therapy? Well, I think where we've seen the field transition to is to understand how our ability to manipulate the genetic code can be leveraged in several ways. One is to directly intervene in a therapeutic pathway. And that's, and we kind of generally refer to that as somatic gene therapy. We're going to take for, for hemophilia, for instance, or for cystic fibrosis, we're going to target the tissue where the protein is absolutely required and try to modify the genome there, whether it's gain of function or loss of function uh, by intervening specifically. Uh, but what has been the biggest pivotal moment in gene therapy, I think, has been the recognition that you can take a patient's own immune cells out of their, uh, by, by electrophoresing the blood and collecting their T cells and modifying them for a different therapeutic purpose. And that gives us a new power. And that lets us unlock much of the, much of the new potential with CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing that gives it uh, an immense amount of uh, bandwidth to the capabilities of genome of genome modification. How do you take a, these cells are terminally differentiated, right? So you're not going to get a lot of propagation out of a T cell uh, beyond its clonal, uh, its clonal expansion, but you are going to be able to effect a certain specific function in a, in a short window of therapeutic opportunity where by unlocking that capability, you may treat a growing tumor or you may treat another infectious process, uh, infectious disease process. And that power is, is really at the forefront of the, uh, of the field. More uh, sort of generally, would you think of that as kind of retargeting the T cells directly, like kind of like taking them out, reprogramming them to look for something specific and then popping them back in? Is that, is that way to think of it? Yeah, that, that's generally how, that's generally how the field has moved. And we've seen that work in some settings and in, it can be challenging because all tumors are different. Every tumor is in some ways unique, but it shares a lot of characteristics of past history. 
so how do we how do we best re-engineer those those specific effectors of the immune system so that they're so that they're sufficient to fight specifically what we want them to fight, whether it's a growing tumor, but also make sure that they're not able to fight something that we don't want them to, some other natural function like that autoimmunity is required. Does- exactly. Yeah. Okay. Autoimmunity is one of the one of the common consequences. Uh, for these immune therapies that are that are basically T cell extraction modification and re implantation into the patient, um, but going back to the concept of of pragmatic approach to the science in hemophilia and in in cystic fibrosis, these other like commonly germline codified uh, genetic issues. In T-cell therapies, you get to take the cells out of the patient and then modify them. You don't have to modify them inside the patient or inside the research animal. That creates an additional tool for the researcher and for the clinician to understand how we can mitigate some of the side effects of genetic intervention. All right. Um, you mentioned CRISPR Cas uh, CRISPR Cas nine. Um, obviously, a, a huge revelation in in gene editing and gene therapy. The the tool now being used. So we won't get too deep into this. There's lots of other resources that I'll link to in in show notes if people want to check out what it is. But uh, the the basic summary that I I would say is it's a basically basically copy and paste for genes. Like you you guys now have a function to say if you find this gene, you pull this out and you replace it with this. So it's a pretty revolutionary thing around how to more specifically target uh, in a surgical fashion how what, what genes you're editing and what you want to put in place. Absolutely. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9, and, and, you know, when I if I draw it back to what Taconic focuses on as a company, we focus on the tools and unlocking the potential for researchers more on the preclinical side of discovery, on the discovery side of new therapeutics. Um, and, and providing those tools at a high integrity so that, so that researchers can then go in and then ask these probing questions about what is, given, given this context, what is an appropriate therapy I could come up with to address a specific problem? Um, when we think about CRISPR-Cas9 as a tool, it has inordinate potential. And CRISPR itself is, is, was not, was a, was an identification of a, of a, primordial, a bacterial immune system, essentially, a way for the bag, for bacteria to detect invading DNA and eliminate it. And it did so in a way that was uh, very specific and that was harnessed to now say, maybe we can, we can hotwire that exact system for intervention and modification of genomes in eukaryotic cells in living systems. And it started in cell lines and progressed into animal models. And and now it's been shown that you can actively intervene in human cells to modify the genome in a very scripted specific way. Um, It's not without limitations, however, and that's, and that's where the scientists uh, have to focus much of their energy is the capability to drive that, that sort of Microsoft word version of function where you can find and replace it's really at the fine and efficiently modified. The extent of that modification, the ability to introduce a copy and paste of a paragraph or a 
two pages of text, those are still at the boundaries of success for CRISPR-Cas9. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, what you mentioned around uh, what Taconic does, I, I think um, just to underscore uh, sort of the one of the elements that I didn't really think about when, when we talked about this is um, in order for you guys to provide a product that uh, produces uh, consistent results for research and sort of is uh, impure uh, from other influences is, was a really interesting aspect of what you do. You guys provide uh, basically lab specimens that are, are engineered in a certain fashion to either have a, a dysfunction or a certain um, uh, gene line that the creates basically a pure petri dish for a researcher to work from. So rather than just sort of uh, a, a bred uh, animal or something like that. You guys use use mice for the most part as as your products, what I understand. But having them built basically with with a, sort of a gene sequence that is understood and is essentially clean. Because the part I didn't think about in this is that if you're trying to research sort of a very specific function from a gene and it has other influences that may or may not be there, that could produce sort of offside results and influence what the researcher sees when they're actually trying to research any gene therapy that they're working on. Yeah, it's a, it, this, this is sort of the, the modern day test tube, right? How do you build, how do you build the most potent environmental test system to learn as much as you can, as quickly as you can? And when we think of, when we think of disease context, we can think of things like obesity or Alzheimer's and they're multifactorial. There's a million things that, that, uh, in, if we think about the end game is a clinical intervention to improve human, the, the human condition, we have to understand that humans are multifactorial and there's many things that contribute to the onset of specific diseases. How do we take and distill in a research setting, those most appropriate conditions so that when a researcher is a, attempting to develop a new drug that that will target specifically the thing that is at the common consequence for most of the people with that experiencing that pathology. So and just out of curiosity, what is sort of the, the lab function for you guys to re reproduce something that has such a genetic similarity? Is it that you edit the genes of the, uh, the, the biology that you're producing or are you cloning them so that you have a similar biology? What's, what's the function that, that is behind that? Yeah, so it starts with a sort of a, a forward look on what are the key, what are the key diseases that are most important to researchers today, and we work backwards and say, okay, well, if it let's say it's Alzheimer's or or uh, a liver disease, how do we go from understanding the challenges and unmet needs for the researcher working in it working on Alzheimer's drugs? backwards to a testable system that is reproducible and that reproducibility can take a lot of different facets. It can be the, the constant and consistent diet conditioning in a liver disease where we're giving them a, a fancy diet so that they develop a specific pathology that is commonly shared across many of the people that are experiencing this liver disease. And, and then documenting how consistent and how frequently that liver disease onset happens in a rodent system so that when a therapeutic intervention is designed, you will know when and how to go into that system to test whether or not it has an effect on that 
common consequence that we that that invariably will happen based on based on the conditioning of the model. When it comes to Alzheimer's, it, it it's much more nebulous because Alzheimer's is not a predictable disease. There's not a single gene we can identify. There's lots of different pathways. There are certain commonalities we understand. But if we can recreate some of those com- uh, commonalities through either gain of function or loss of function through genetic engineering of the mouse, we can provide a testable unit that gives certainty to the researcher that when they go to do a specific experiment, they have a known consequence for no intervention or a placebo intervention. And that gives them, that yields them the ability to test uh, the, the outcomes of the, the, the therapeutic intervention that they're developing. So I'll certainly uh, volunteer myself as one of the people that is on side with what you guys are doing here. Uh, I think I think it's incredible, um, sort of uh, a use case for what is required and and the diligence uh, necessary to do this type of research. But I, I'm sure you guys are met with some resistance around you know the, mm-hmm. the people, the naturalists, essentially suggesting that you know we shouldn't be na- manipulating the genes and this is playing God and those types of things. What would you su- uh, sort of say to to the the people that are a bit sensitive? around this type of technology i think that i think that tightly controlled this technology is incremental advancements right we take and we we can modify a single gene and we can yield an outcome and we can characterize what happens with that outcome and that takes a lot of once you've done the modification at least in a rodent system where you've actively intervened to gain or lose a function you have you have a standard playbook that we must follow. And that's to make sure that the pedigrees, the the follow on breeding is appropriate so that that's always going to be the thing that you're testing. And that's part of that clean test tube hypothesis that if you, if you're testing a pure system, you can recognize the results based on whatever variable you choose to manipulate. And it's not going to be the system that's going to be the moving target. It's going to be the, it's going to be the therapeutic intervention. Um, that's absolutely required for us to to advance these therapeutics through a drug development pipeline, and for us to yield the benefit on on these specific human common consequences of whether it's a, a Western diet or um, uh, or genetic propensity for a specific disease, we're obligated to build the right tools to unlock the creativity of the, of the researchers downstream and provide those in a high integrity way. And that, that's where we focus on is what's the, what's the highest integrity, most information packed system we can provide to the research community. So would that include systems like, like gene drives? Cause I know that there's, there's probably a higher sensitivity to that type of technology where you're making germline changes and those would be passed on to future generations and potentially have sort of influential effects on basically the entire uh, gene line of a, of a, of a species, for example. Yeah. Um, so we generally don't participate that broadly with the with the overall core concept of, of gene drives. It's a fascinating topic um, to, to understand how could one manipulate external populations. Um, in our industry, we're very tightly controlled on how we keep things specifically within the research paradigm. They're not really made to, to wind up in, a, in any other setting 
um, other than a research laboratory where scientists are actively intervening. Uh, when we when we address the concept of gene drives, it's, it's profound and fascinating to think that our ability to manipulate the genetics of living things that live externally uh, will have downstream consequences, whether it's introducing, you know, pesticide resistance in crops or 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 um, or some some uh, susceptibility to uh, 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 pesticides for for controlling malaria outbreaks. These are, these, are, these are fascinating concepts, but what is important for the researchers is to have the incremental advancements in understanding of the cause and effect of A, manipulating an organism and B, the downstream outcomes. Uh, one thing we touched on earlier was, the, was that genes don't operate in isolation. Right. So when we manipulate the genome, we are creating a lot of downstream consequences. Some of them are easy and, and they're very severe, like hemophilia. If we intervene in that disease, we may correct the, the thing that is most likely to cause a negative outcome for a patient that's, that's deficient in a factor of uh, one of the blood clotting factors. When you start moving into other areas, the gain and loss of function of specific genes has a myriad effect that may not be easily predictable. But having that testable system to scenario plan, what are, what are the things that could happen are necessary for researchers to, to really advance the development of these medications. Right. So uh, the, the gene drive functions um, appropriately scary, not necessarily something that you guys uh, sort of participate in. And, and it's just sort of an externality of this capability to be able to make these these changes. But as you said, you know, uh, appropriate caution, because uh, you know, we're not as humans, we're not terribly good at understanding the larger impacts of, of manipulations or changes that we make to the environment and, and not really having a capacity to understand the downstream effects is, is why people are, could get appropriately nervous around that, that, that type of intervention, right? Sure. I think that, that that's sort of where um, when, you, when you have scientists with a healthy amount, every scientist sort of inbred with this healthy amount of skepticism on on tools. I, I remember when CRISPR-Cas9 came out before that, we had zinc finger nucleases and tailings and other ways to modify the genome that were giving us these indicators of potential to, to actively intervene in a specific genetic pathway. And our control at this point is, is pretty good. But the downstream consequences, when you factor in how many genes are expressed and the constellation of interactions that those proteins encoded by those genes have in executing a physiologic outcome, a, a specific pathway, a metabolic pathway, or, a, or an immunologic pathway. How do we factor in the, the downstream consequences of loss of function? It's, it's, a, it's an important provocative question that, that without the appropriate tools, scientists can't ask. Right. And, and what we try to do at Taconic is provide a testable living system capable of answering some of those questions. Right. So the other side of this uh, uh, that I think is more 
I guess more of a recent uh, application of, of the sciences would be the microbiome. And this, you know, the microbiome has become it's the superstar of uh, biological research and just general biological interest. Like the level that we've learned of how influential the microbiome is to the overall system and its, uh, its direct integration to brain function and all kinds of stuff has been absolutely fascinating over the last few years. Do you want to comment a bit on, on sort of the expansion of the microbiome research? Yeah, this is a major focus for us at our company. Um, you can imagine that that if the microbiome, if we assume the microbiome is important, and when we de- when we properly define the microbiome, it's the bacteria that lives in our gut and on our skin. That's that's the most general way to think about it. But what that what those bacteria do is they live in a state of symbiosis with that create a holistic organism, and their function is important for our function. And when we think that in a in a typical in vivo model system we are discreetly controlling the microbiome by eliminating the adverse consequences of specific bacteria that can lead the animals to get sick or that can that that can erode the confidence in specific results um, we're basically manu- we're basically producing our animal models in a clean room and is a cre- and, and so the next question is, is a clean room reflective of what happens in the population? Because we know humans aren't living in a clean room. So when we think about the impact on a, an in vivo model and how it translates to what is the, the, for lack of a better term, the messy situation that happens for normal human behavior and human life and human activity, how do we start to better model what the microbiome impact is on um, physiology and drug metabolism. Hmm. Uh, What we know about what we've learned in the last uh, four or five years is that drugs don't always respond the same way in this, in every person that they're given to. And we can then go back and model that in, in, uh, in vivo systems like our models where we change the manipulate, we manipulate the microbiome and the drugs don't behave the same way. In that very well-controlled, testable system, the drugs don't behave the same way. And it's more reflective of a human population. That tells us that the microbiome itself is an acting contributor to what the success or failure of not only whether a drug works in humans when it makes it to the clinic, but whether it worked in the preclinical space when someone was testing something that otherwise looked really important to move move through a pipeline. Perhaps the the in vivo model used had a microbiome that was actively intervening blind to the scientists, whether or not that was important. And that's, that to me is a very disruptive element of uh, what we do in an active area of investigation for our, uh, what we call our sort of our disruptive innovation uh, strategy. That's, it's so fascinating. Like I've, I've heard some reports of um, people that get fecal matter transplants and they report uh, personality changes, even sort of their ability to lose weight or gain weight uh, is a function of the micro, the microbiome and what exists inside them. It sort of has this, this knock-on effect of this direct correlation to their physiology. It's such a wild thing to think of. Yeah, it's, it, for us, it's, it's of critical importance to understand because if, if we take, if we take the way that just those, those anecdotal responses point are an indicator to us that the microbiome itself is going to be 
a new criteria for evaluating the success or failure of specific drugs and compounds. And that's that's not even addressing whether the microbiome itself can be an active therapeutic, which is another area of active of um, significantly, it's an active area of investment in in the venture capital space where we're seeing a lot of activity in companies that are making bugs as drugs. And maybe you can re-engineer the microbiome combining both the capabilities uh, of our of our ability to manipulate the genomes in a bacterial setting, reintroduce those to have some positive function or to have some insulating function in in preserving a, a status quo or a thera- uh, in a therapeutic intervention. So there's lots of places where this microbiome aspect of our uh, of what we do to build tools for researchers uh, can take us. So what would be your feeling of uh, sort of the state of research around more of the public commercial space of this? There's there's companies that uh, like Ubiome and Viome that do uh, the analysis of the microbiome. But a lot of people suggest that our understanding of what's actually in there is so infantile that it's not really that useful. What's your feeling on that? Uh, yeah, so, so that is the exact same perspective that, uh, that, that Gregor Mendel, Watson and Crick were confronted with, right? There is this idea of heredity in the genome and going back hundreds of years, you can say that there is, there must be something hereditary to the way, to the way genes are propagated through a typical species, that's a that's a point that we had no clear understanding until Watson and Crick solved the structure of DNA, and it wasn't until Kerry Mullis solved the the ability to do polymerase chain reaction where we could start really examining base by base the genetic integrity of a specific modification, and as that carried forward, I think that's what we're looking at with the microbiome, as we with our ability to do next gen sequencing we have a greater level of granularity to understand how the microbiome itself is characterizable, codified, and differentiating across geographic regions, specific ethnicities, populations, dietary patterns, um, physiologic conditions. That Once we start aggregating this information, we can start harnessing it uh, for that therapeutic outcome. And, and so I think we're really in the early days of understanding it, um, which creates a really exciting time because we're back to uh, we're back to that setting where, you know, back when the, the genome was originally sequenced, we had a billion base pairs in the genome. We now know there's uh, maybe give or take 30,000 genes that are actively um, expressed in any given uh, any given cell in the human in the human um, now move into the microbiome. There are 14 trillion variables in every single mouse that we produce. Whoa. You know, you think about the, when you think about the magnitude of variable introduction, unappreciated variables, and these come in lots of different ways. We know that they come directly when you take an oral medication, they can act directly on that medication to change the way that it's metabolized, creating a, a positive or a negative outcome or the bacteria itself can create a system where the immune system doesn't recognize a specific therapeutic. So, so understanding the myriad ways, characterizing, cataloging, understanding the, the, the different conditions that drive these outcomes and tying that back to 
what specific interventions could we make to either improve our testable system or improve our uh, our therapeutic decisions i think is going to be uh, is going to be a game changer for the way we think about the microbiome and therapeutics going forward so outside of the, the sort of the research application uh, again like on the on that commercial side um, curious you because you're close to this and you understand a lot of the more the the, the, the research level um, you know people suggest that taking probiotics for example is is just you know throwing money down there it, it populates for maybe 10 minutes and then everything gets gets reset uh, what are your feelings on sort of our ability to manipulate our own microbiome for for the positive because it does have a, a significant effect on our immune system and our brain function so what's your feeling on our ability to to manipulate our own microbiome uh, I think I think we're still in the early days of understanding it. I, I think many of those things are kind of the flashpoints where we can where we can identify what's a what's a probiotic and say this is this is consistent with what's in a healthy gut. That's that's a nice correlation. It's not causation, but it tells us something, right? It gives us a flashpoint to say maybe this is perhaps this is a worthwhile intervention, and that requires a systematic evaluation. And that's where this that's where much of the research field comes in to say how can we systematically untie these these positive flashpoints that that are unique indicators or anecdotal and take them back and work through the science to figure out what is what is the absolute driver of that so that we so that we know how to best tailor that. I think there there the pot- the potential is there. Uh, and we may be directionally correct with some of the some of the more commercial endeavors. Um, personally, not root, I'm not rooted in the scientific outcome of those uh, in, in the in the integrity of the outcomes projected by those. Um, but they are substrate for scientists to go systematically evaluate, and that's that's where uh, I, I think the science lives right now is is how do we best understand. Um, in great detail, what what are the the critical components for for positive or negative outcomes for the therapeutic side? So it's early, it's interesting, and it needs more research, right? It is absolutely disruptive. I mean, if you think about all the all the drugs since the appreciation of the microbiome, our ability to to understand it on a granular level, and when I say granular, we're doing we're sequencing every single bacteria in the gut using next-gen sequencing to understand what's that microbiome profile look like. This is technology that didn't exist five, seven years ago wow. on the scale that we're able to do it. So now when you get to that level of granularity, how do you go backwards and say, well, in the 90s, we put all these drugs through a pipeline and they had they got killed in the pipeline for efficacy. What's the likelihood that they were killed for efficacy when we couldn't show it in an in vivo system without understanding this massive variable component. And, and we play that into the normal diet and physiology of, of people, and it becomes even more complex. So how do, you know, I think that's where we're really on the precipice of understanding, leveraging all these constellation of technologies to, to intervene actively in what's, what's the most appropriate way to control that microbiome. 
This is really fascinating stuff, Michael. I, I appreciate your your input on this. Um, I'll give you a, a, a bit of time to point to where people can follow you, and I'll include all of that in the show notes. Uh, before we get to that, is there anything I haven't asked you, or any topic that you feel is is really interesting that we should touch on before before we uh, jump off? No, I think we got it. Um, you can follow me at uh, at our website. Uh, www.taconic.com primarily an audience for researchers but you'll learn a lot through our insights uh, section on the website of what are researchers really caring about and how they're defining the appropriate in vivo models to drive uh, the newest class of therapeutics forward Uh, we're actively developing new products so that so that uh, researchers can be more effective and as a company taconic's primary mission is to develop the most highly potent information-packed systems so that researchers can accelerate their drug discovery pipeline. Incredibly useful and incredibly required for the future of research and and medicine and biology as a whole. So really applaud what you guys are doing. And uh, thanks for joining us to give us a bit of a a peek on the inside of uh, the genetic engineering world. You got it. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate it.